Welcome to the Eat, Train, Prosper podcast, where we provide you sustainable training principles for strength and building muscle, effective nutrition practices for improving and maintaining a lean physique, and practical lifestyle habits for becoming a champion of your own health, both inside and out. Hosted by Aaron Straker and Brian Borstein. What's up, guys? Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to another episode of Eat, Train, Prosper. Today, Brian and myself are going to get into our conversation that eventually just ended up getting pushed from last week, and that is dealing with injuries. So I know I said on last week's episode that I myself have dealt with a considerable amount of injuries, training-induced injuries over my 14, 15, 16 years, however long training. And I fortunately, Brian, I think has uh, significantly less, but he is experiencing one somewhat minor, but kind of a pain in the ass right now, which kind of prompted this episode. So we're going to finally dig into these on this week's episode, and we will keep our updates a little bit lighter. Brian, I'm going to let you kick us off with our updates today. Yeah, yeah. I have a bunch of updates, but I'm going to keep them short today so that we don't need to to, to talk about the entire episode here. But um, the good news is that I am now 14 days into this injury uh, to my foot. And for those that don't know, I tore my uh, plantar fascia um, jogging. So that's cool. Uh, but uh, I guess the, the positive is that I'm standing again. So last week, if you watched the episode, I was sitting and it was a uh, combination of my foot, obviously, being only a week from, from tearing and then also a serious compensation injury I had endured in my low back, um, I think, from hobbling around on that foot so much. And, uh, since that injury, uh, to my foot and then compensation to the low back, I've had two additional compensation injuries over the past, uh, week that now are healed. So in retrospect, you know, you always look at these things and you're like, oh, it wasn't a big deal at all because, you know, you're past it. But in the moment, um, what I was experiencing was, was annoying and, and quite cumbersome. So, um, my injury to my foot is on my right foot. But I've been putting in between 10 and 12,000 steps a day, just being at the lake and trying to chase the kids around and 10 to 12,000 steps a day on a, on a limp means there's a whole lot of other stuff happening in there. So my other leg, uh, got super tight and swollen, uh, around behind the kneecap. So I was a little concerned for a minute that it was, um, blood clot related. Cause that's something I had back in 2012 when we had the CrossFit gym, um, I had a DVT in my left leg, uh, kind of a freak thing, but I was obviously concerned that that was what was happening again. Um, luckily a day or two later, um, stayed off my foot a little bit, only did 7,000 steps and, uh, sleep slept a little bit and the leg ended up healing up on the other side. That's not a big deal. Um, also ended up pulling my trap on, on my left side, assuming that, uh, you know, I was probably in the gym doing something and not bracing properly through my feet and, uh, and ended up with a little bit of a tweak in my trap, which is also better now. So both of the two, uh, compensation injuries on the left side have been pretty minor. The low back thing that had occurred on the same side as the foot is also mostly better. So right now I'm now basically just dealing with my foot, which is, a-okay by me. Um, I'm sure we'll get into a bit more of the injury talk as we get going here, but um kind of just moving in quickly to some training stuff. Because I uh had this this foot thing and didn't want to create any further compensation issues, I decided that I was gonna push my leg extensions and leg curls a bit harder and then dial back on the compound movements for the quads and the hamstrings. And, uh, I really surprised myself. I, uh, last year on my leg extension here at, in Wisconsin, 200 by 10 was like a zero RIR. I even have video of it. And last week, I think I mentioned that I went up to like 235 by nine or something like that. So I was like, wow, that's crazy improvement. And then two days ago or yesterday, I went up to 250 and made 10 reps. So, um, I, I don't exactly know what to think of it. Like, there's a piece of me that's like, man, I must have been sandbagging last year, like 50 pounds on a leg extension. That's crazy. But I mean, you watch the video and like, I legitimately was rep speed slowed. Like I was making faces, blah, blah, blah. Like all the things like I know, I know how to train to failure. Right. So I don't, I don't exactly know what to think of how I added 50 pounds to my leg extension, but I hit 250 by 10 the other day. 
And then um, the leg curl, I've added 15 pounds and two reps since last year. So from 135 times 10, I made uh, 150 times 12 yesterday. And then that got me thinking about how weird it is that I max out the leg extension machine. So 250 is like the whole stack. You can't go any heavier than that. And then the leg curl machine has the same 250 pound stack that we have on the leg extension. And yet I can only do 150 pounds on the leg curl. And it just like, it's unfortunate the way machines are, you know, mass designed in this way where they probably just create the same weight stack and they just put it on the different machines and like they don't really think much about leverages and and um uh strength curves and stuff like that. But uh like whoever there is out there that can max out a leg curl machine is going to have no challenge on the leg extension. So I just find that really interesting that you can have one machine that can potentially challenge somebody so much on the leg curl and then have it be like subsequently so easy on the leg extension. And, and, uh, you would think there's just the simple solution would just be like, Hey, let's make the leg extension machine go to 350 pounds and the leg curl can go to 250 or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was pretty interesting. Any, what do you think about that? Do you notice that on machines that you train with too? I literally was having this conversation with a guy in the gym today. He's like a bigger guy on gear, you know, um, strong. And he was using the standing hamstring curl, like the single arm one and all the machine, all the machinery in here is like Watts and stuff. And I made a joke around like, who do you think, you know, using that entire stack? And he's like, bro, I don't have a clue. Like I can, I'm using like 12 of like, and what's also funny here is they're not even like labeled. It's just like plate one, plate two, plate three, plate four. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not like it doesn't represent. Like, it doesn't convert to kilos or whatever. It's just like no, this is plate five, dog. Like that's what you get on all the machines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, I can only use like the twelfth one. And when I do that, it's like I'm on like the fourth or fifth. And I was like, who the fuck is doing the one with like twenty? You know. So we were joking around <laughs> that, and he's like, yeah, I could max out the leg extension, like no problem. Like this, I I could barely do half of it. And when you were talking, like it would be, it would be interesting to bring an equipment manufacturer on the podcast or an, an, or, or an equipment engineer. And I think what ultimately the answer is like the people that design it are like, maybe they probably lift weights, but they're probably not like overly versed in things on like resistance profiles and that sort of stuff. Maybe the prime people for sure. Cause I mean, the prime shit is top notch and they obviously bought the rights to what used to be strive which was incredibly revolutionary for what they were doing back like when we were pretty much children still they were doing a lot of this stuff um but it is like really wild when you just get in a lot and overwhelming a lot of machinery they're just like they're just built poorly you know and for yeah end range stuff and it, it has been something in the last like two to three years i've started to pay more attention to of like, why does this machine hurt, you know, my knees or whatever? And, and things are like, oh, this is just designed really poorly sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, it's just weird how you can max out some like pull downs. I can almost max out the stack on most pull down machines. And then you'll do something like a bicep curl and I'll be on like the fifth plate of 12 or 15 or whatever it is, you know? So it just really doesn't make any sense because I'm not like, um, completely imbalanced. Like it's not like my, my quads are, are stronger than my biceps, um, in a manner that, that isn't the same as other people. Um, but one thing Cass, Cass actually responded to my story about that. And he goes, cause I was talking about the 50 pound increase on the leg extension. And he goes, when did you get your pendulum? And that was just his question. He left it like open-ended. And uh, of course I was able to think my way through this and be like, wow, now that you mention it, I arrived back from this trip last year and my pendulum was like in a box waiting for me. So I've been using my pendulum now for a year. And then I, I mean, I, I still can't justify that as being like 50 pounds on a leg extension machine. So, so I don't know, maybe I've just like figured out like kind of the mechanics of it a little bit better, how to brace better, things like that. But I, I obviously don't think I've gained 50 pounds of strength on, on my quads. Um, so then kind of continuing real quick uh, to, to, because I had that compensation injury to my low back last week that I talked about, I really, really wanted to make sure that I didn't get another one uh, yesterday because we're about to take our uh, 15 hour road trip back to Boulder uh, tomorrow. 
So after the leg curls and leg extensions, I did uh, two kind of modified movements where I went with a heels elevated barbell back squat. And uh, I hadn't done that in, it's been since I worked with Brian Miner, probably two and a half years at this point. Um, so I put 135 pounds on the bar and performed them, you know, with like a five second eccentric, a two second pause at the bottom, making sure my torso doesn't collapse forward at all as I ascend. And literally 135 pounds is all I needed for three sets of 10. And you watch a video and the the final rep is like, man, I almost get stuck in the middle because my natural tendency is to, to let that torso come forward. So I made a comment that like, I could probably do 20 more reps if I were to just like, perform them in whatever manner I need to do to go from the bottom to the top. But given the constraints of the precise way in which I was executing this uh, as a quad dominant movement with the chest up, et cetera, um, I literally hit 10 reps on the third set. And I was like, wow, that was one RIR. Like, I don't know if I could have done anymore, which is crazy to say, you know, with 135 pounds on the bar. And then uh, today I'm sore. Like, like my quads are legitimately sore from three sets of 10 um, at 135. So I, I think that's interesting. And I got a great, great, great stimulus from it. Um, and if there's a way that I can keep back squat in my program in some future cycle and not let the ego get the best of me, because there's like a part of me that thinks even if I went up to like 185 or 225 and performing it exactly like the way I want to perform it, that I, I would, I would compensate. Um, so like, can I keep myself at 135, 155, 165 range? Um, or does my body just naturally going to go into this kind of compensated pattern, um, as a means of progression? And that's kind of, you know, the main reason I don't even like back squats because I find that deviation to be <sighs> almost inherent. Like it's difficult for me not to do it in some ways. Do you, do you kind of find the and same? Well, that was the question I was going to present to you. Like Why? And then not to be from like a, not to say that from like a, being a dick standpoint, but like knowing that, why do you want to incorporate it back into the training program? Cause I think the stimulus was super solid. Like, uh, I mean, no, I, maybe I'm just thinking that because of the options I have presented around me right now in this gym in Wisconsin, where the alternative is a horizontal leg press or a Smith machine squat. And I really, really don't like the Smith machine. I've kind of gone back and forth on it um, over the years. And I had a period where I was like pro Smith machine when I was kind of doing the Mike Isretel thing. And he's kind of big on the Smith machine. Um, but I hate it for upper body stuff because of the way it locks you into pronation. And then for lower body stuff, it just... I've never gotten a great stimulus from it. Like last week, I did a top set of five reps and then a back off set of eight reps. And... Uh, both of them were, you know, one or two RIR or whatever. And I just, I didn't get much from it. Like my quads didn't feel pumped afterwards. I didn't get sore the next day. And then I do these sets of heels elevated back squat with 135 and like my quads are blown up mid set and like post, you know, next day I'm, I'm sore from 135 pounds, which is obviously novel. So, you know, there's, there's that aspect too, but, um, I just, I just get a good stimulus from it. And like, we talk about how we're not built to back squat a lot, but I think I'm maybe more built to back squat than I originally thought just because um, I have such great ankle dorsiflexion as you do too. So like if we are able to get ourselves to stay strict to, to a type of execution, like not allowing the, the torso to cave type thing, um, I would guess that the back squat could be a good movement for us. But, um, I mean, like at, at home, I have a pendulum and a leg press. So it's kind of like, is it, is it better than those when you do that opportunity cost assessment? I would agree with that. The one thing I would say on, on the, the Smith machine ever since, have you ever seen Charlie, um, Charlie, Oh man, I don't know how to say his last Yeah. Name. With the straps where he puts like angles, things on there and holds it like a safety Game bar changer. because yeah. for me, like same thing. I've very good ankle dorsiflexion, especially when I have my Oli shoes on. But a thing with the barbell is like I have really long arms, so to hold on, it's putting me in at least in a, in a position of extension, like thoracic extension, just to hold on, and being able to bring my hands here and have like it's it's like a hack squat, except my back is obviously not supported, but I am able to create a very very advantageous knee over the toe position, um, with the Smith machine using that. So it's all like 
your check downs of what equipment availability you have, but just that little thing of like, oh, I can wrap these straps around, get my hands five inches forward. I'm able to be stay in a much more advantageous squat position by doing so. Yeah. Yeah. I actually thought about that after I finished my set and there was like, or after I finished the two sets last week and there was a part of me that almost like wanted to go back and do a third set, like deviate from my program and do another set just to see what that felt like. But, um, but at the same time, I, I did not want to do another set. So, um, then, uh, real quick, just kind of can finishing up training updates here. Uh, I talked about a couple episodes ago, my new, the, the change to the split that I'm doing this cycle. And the main difference just being that I split my shoulder and arm day into a shoulder day and an arm day. And then I threw abs on shoulder day. Um, and the main reason being that I want to accentuate, uh, work to my front delts. So, uh, I did this shoulder day for the first time. I literally haven't done a shoulder day since before CrossFit. It must've been like max OT days, like 2009 or something like that. Um, but I, I did this shoulder day and it was, uh, what did it do? It was two sets of rear delt row, two sets of anterior delt press, two de- sets of rear delt pull down, two sets of cable front raise, and then two sets of, uh, behind the back lateral raise. So 10 total shoulder sets, four rear delts, one, two, two laterals and four front raise, uh, variations or front delt. Or um, stimulus and my shoulders were sore. Uh, they were sore yesterday and amazingly they were sore in the lateral delts. So I was kind of like, I didn't expect my rear delts to get sore. Cause I, I've been training real delts, real rear delts hard for a really long time. I did kind of expect front delts to be sore because I haven't trained front delts in, in years really directly. Um, but it was my lateral delts that were sore. So I'm not like complaining about that. I think that, you know, anytime you can get your lateral delts, uh, a good stimulus, that's awesome. And my guess is that I'm probably hitting a, a decent amount of lateral delt with my front raise, um, just because those motions are a little similar, especially when you do your lateral raises in the scapular plane, you're, you're kind of coming forward a little bit. Um, but I was really happy to see that, that my shoulders got sore, which means that the stimulus is good, at least initially, you know, and then, uh, the arm day was really fun too. I haven't had an arm day again in you know, 15 years basically. And so it was really fun to do an arm day. Um, and so that's the update there. I'm finding the sessions, uh, in general with this split, splitting my four days of training into five days. I'm finding the sessions each to be less fatiguing, which I really like too. They're like not quite as time consuming and they're not quite as, as mentally exhausting. And so I actually did abs at the end of shoulder day because usually it's shoulders and arms and then I'm crushed or it's legs. And then I'm supposed to do abs after legs. And like that never happens. Um, but doing abs after shoulders was perfect. So, uh, really happy with that. Um, and then final update here is, uh, nutrition. So I mentioned last week that I had my week of, uh, of hedonistic, uh, enjoyment and, uh, the scale jumped up pretty high. And then since then, this last week, I've kind of been still having some days of eating more, um, but following those with days of eating less. So my appetite is kind of regulating itself now where I'm not just hungry all the time. So I'll have one or two days of eating in a surplus, and then I'll naturally have one or two days of eating in a deficit and then kind of rotating like that. And my body weight has stabilized into uh, the the high 180s, which is nice. It's a pound or two down from last week. And, uh, I'd like to kind of just hang out here. Like I'd like to, to make the, the high one eighties a home for a little bit, maybe hang out at maintenance and, uh, just get comfortable there. And, uh, that gives me a little more freedom as far as what I want to do with the next, uh, periodization portion of nutrition from there. You're up. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, I have a, I have a couple, um, the first thing I will say, so I am like, I'm in a calorie deficit, you know, I'm, I'm using air quotes here for the listeners, but it's been kind of unlike any calorie deficit I, I have ever done before because we are much more focused on me just getting experience with the different training phases. Um, so things are like a lot more s- slow and my weight isn't really changing much. Um, it did initially, but it's been pretty consistent since, uh, especially since starting the metabolic phase that I just wrapped up last week, but it's just a lot lower. It's one of those things where it's like, 
how do you quantify volume, right? Because it was a lot of sets. It was five sets for every exercise, but a lot of things in order to adhere to the protocol I'm using would, would be considered a light load, but with an incomplete rest. So it's like, it really comes back like equating volume is hard. Equating volume in terms of effort is very, very hard because with like an IRM, you know, I was doing like 35% of what I was doing in the strength phase and I couldn't, I would fail, you know, from just like the lactic, you know, uh, uh, the, the metabolites building up in, in the metabolic waste that would, you know, build up and I, you just, you just start failing things cause you're, you know, there's not enough resources to perform. So it was, but I never felt like fatigued, you know, from like a, a central fatigue of that sort of training. Um, and then it was kind of frustrating as my check-in photos, like I think my physique kind of, um, not backpedaled, but like de degraded, deteriorated, not deteriorated, but like got worse per se from, from an image standpoint. Um, because like the training was not as hard per se. Um, you didn't so notice was the, the shuttling and the facilitation a, of the glucose into the muscle cells from the IRM stuff. I, I can't confidently say that my physique okay. improved over the metabolic, the, the three weeks of the yeah, metabolic. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, how many is just kind of related to what you were saying about quantifying volume? Your leg press was five sets. Is that right? Five sets of IRM? Five, everything, I, everything was five um, sets and then, of IRM. So the first set was, what would you say, like a 10 or a 12 RIR or something like that? And then by yeah. the end, you're at zero-ish, one. Well, some things that were like shortened overload, yes, or I would be failing them. There was the leg press. I also had an anterior delt press and a, man, it was a flat dumbbell press, I think as well, were my like mid-range movements. And those ones, you have, that first set has yeah, to be a 10 or 12 R R I R because you, you by set three. Yeah. That's failing. like literally remember I made that, uh, I told that story of the first time that I asked Cass about the IRM method and I was like, yeah, I've been doing it on incline dumbbell bench press. And he goes, Oh, you don't do that on, on lengthened overload movements. Like you, you can't do it, you know? And, uh, and so you're right. Like it yeah. is a 10 to 12 RIR. And then even with that, that super low effort in the first set by like set three, four or five, like you're butting up against failure. Yeah. And the interesting thing is I, I posted this on my story, but I had, I took a video of the final leg press yep. set of the final week. Even that last rep, that's probably like a four RIR. But if you like, look at me, I am in so much pain <laughs> performing that. It was like when I watched the video, like the dichotomy of how it felt and the pain I was in versus like how fast yeah. it was moving. I was like, God damn, I couldn't imagine having another 10 kilos on there or three more like reps. That. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or three more reps. Yeah. Uh, so that was, it was interesting. Um, but I, I can't say that I noticed any like physique improvement, but it could be like food, you know, food's been really, really consistent. Um, and then from, from there with that, uh, I'm now into the hypertrophy training, which is, I'm excited for, um, and I had my yesterday was kind of like an intro day. Uh, my other update I have here is I did get like a laser tattoo removal session on Saturday. If you're unfamiliar, they are horrible of what happens afterward. Huge, like immune response, blisters, all the sorts of things. And then if it's on a larger tattoo like mine, it kind of crushes you for a couple days and you really can't do much. Um, then you don't want it to get it infected and all this other stuff. But I was fortunate that I was actually able to go train on Monday and just, I just kind of, it's like, okay, I'm not going to do crazy tricep stuff and stuff. So I had like an intro day and then today was like my first, you know, real training session back. I had the hack squat in the strength phase, right? And then today was like week one, I generally will do like weight discovery and making sure I can gauge yep. RIRs and find my movements and stuff. But I was able to perform 150 kilos on my set of 10 today for my fourth set, which was still, it was supposed to be like a failure set. It ended up being like a two RR, but in the end of the strength block, 
I did 180 kilos for my final set of five. So 30 more kilos yeah. for half the reps at the yeah. end of the strength block. This is week one. I was like, I was really scared because I was like, I mean, these are moving really well, but the based on the logs I have, I'm like, I feel like I'm being kind of dumb here just because I always, my eyes are always bigger than what I can perform. And I always like start too high and then I'm failing and stuff like that. So I was really trying to avoid that. Um, but the reps were like, they were really clean, good reps. I was like, hey, fuck, did I really get this much Dude, stronger? that's going to be awesome like, over the course of the cycle to see yeah. how that improves. Because right now, like you might be able to take 180 for six or seven, you know, like that might be like a realistic yeah, representation yeah, so. of your, where you're currently at. Do you, um, yeah, you trained at the same gym last time you were in Bali. Do you have any, uh, comparisons of machines that maybe were, were there then and are there now type thing? No, because I, I didn't, I don't remember what I used to track my training back then, but it was a different app, um, than I use now. Um, that would be cool though. Anything. That would be super no. cool. Cause like, yeah. you know, it would be like when I, when I went yeah, back to San be. Diego and I was like, Oh, I haven't thought about these pieces of equipment or this gym in three plus years. And then to be able to have those comparisons, super cool. But one thing that I, I, I have started doing, and I would recommend this for you know the listeners out there and stuff, when I am with my lifestyle every handful of months, I'm basically in a new gym, I start, instead of it just being like leg extension machine, I'm like, this is a Watson leg extension. This is the like whatever. So that, what, that way when I am at a, a gym again that has that same machine, I can be like, okay. I have entries of like each leg extension by which manufacturer. Yeah, they like do that, change by year too, cool. though, which is like also very frustrating. You know, like some I, of them in yeah. Wisconsin here, there's a matrix leg extension, and I've seen matrix leg extensions at other gyms that are like don't even look like this matrix. Yeah. So, um, cool. Yeah. Well, do you and have any more updates, update or do you want to do? Um, Sorry, go for it. Yeah, I do. I do have one. Um, I had a, my first client that I prepped for like a big photo shoot and I, it was something, it was like the first client who was like super, 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 super into it where we got to like swing for the fences. Right. And I got to really, really nerd out on everything and it couldn't have went any better. I'm like super, super pumped about it. Um, he was like stoked over the moon and it was just like fun to have someone who's like just as into it as, as I am. And I really got to like just go as deep as I wanted to go. Um, nutrition, everything was like followed to an absolute T first one. And like, I put up some store, I put up like a photo on my story. I literally had to be like, he's not on gear. Cause the photo is yeah. that good. So I was, no, that really photo was insane, dude. He, um, he, he had like the, the delt caps that you want to see. Like you could see the front delt from the backside, which is always just so awesome. And then his erectors had like striations in them. Um, and then you, you posted underneath that he was only 80 kilograms. So like 176 pounds or whatever. And I'm guessing he's at least my height, if not taller, probably. I cannot remember how tall he is. He's in Australia. So everything yeah, we do yeah, is yeah. in kilos. Um, and, and but he looked great, so. man. And that's, that's awesome. I, I, it's, it's actually too bad. We don't have a higher YouTube viewership and most people download, um, cause we could insert like a, a photo for everyone to see, but it's all good. Yeah. If you want to see go it, I guess straight. you can yeah, just yeah, or go, yeah. <laughs> I'll send it or I'll send Yeah. We'll figure it out eventually. But yeah, that's it for the updates. And then me. we were just going to briefly touch on our thoughts on the uh, debate between Cass and Brett Contreras before we jump into the training uh, around injuries piece. Um, but so far, we're, there's two of the three parts have been released to the public. And, uh, man, it's, 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 it, it, as I speak to you guys about this, I, I don't know whether you've seen some of the drama that's ensued after the debates. Um, but Brett basically wrote like this, uh, really gnarly post more or less attacking Cass. And then all of the people that he would probably refer to as Cass's minions, the, basically the people that learn from Cass and this would, this would include like big names like Mark Carroll, Lauren Simpson, Paul Carter, um, and then other people like myself and Ben Yanes and Jordan Lips and 
uh, Valerie and uh, Daniel Webster and just, man, the list goes on. There's so many people that have learned a lot from Cass, but um, Brett, like, first of all, I find Brett just insufferable. Um, he's, he's really difficult to listen to. He's kind of like an overgrown child. He interrupts all the time and he throws out the, well, I have a PhD and so just listen to me. I know what I'm talking about type thing. And it just like, I almost didn't even listen to the second debate, the second episode, because I found it so hard to listen to after the first one. And then in the second one, I watched it on YouTube because I just wanted to kind of see how Cass reacted to everything. And like, he got interrupted constantly. I think Cass may have gotten like 12 words into that whole second episode. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but um, like many times Cass would begin talking and then Brett would just cut him off and Cass would just kind of sit there smiling, just like, mm -hmm, like nodding his head, like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And so anyway, I just found it really difficult to listen to. And like the information was decent. Like I learned a little bit. Some of it was over my head. Um, but I just, man, I find Brett really hard to listen to. What are your thoughts? I have, I bet different thoughts than maybe you would think going into it. Um, I wanted to listen to the first one. I sat down, I got about like nine minutes in. I, I agree. I can't listen to Brett. Like he just can't get his fucking words out. He was all over the place and I just couldn't listen to it. I literally gave it like the old college <laughs> try and I was like, I can't fucking do this. I cannot do it. So I didn't get through all of it. I do, however, have my thoughts. Um, this one is a really interesting perspective as being, you know, I've gone through the N1 practical. I ultimately agree with a lot of the things Cass says. He, he presents his arguments very, very well and, and, and clear, that sort of thing. I do, however live with someone, right? My girlfriend, Jenny spent a considerable time in the mm -hmm. glute lab, Brett's, you know, gym in San Diego. It's hard to argue with results. And at the end of the day, like, what are we all doing this for results? And I'm not co-signing Brett's methods or anything like that whatsoever. But at the end of the day, he has helped produce thousands of big butts for girls who want big butts. And that is where it's, it's hard. And aside from like, maybe this is just a little bit of my limited knowledge of like the amount of athletes or the athletes and stuff they have, but like Valerie's the only one that I personally know of from like cast and stuff and, or the N1 style method methodologies and that sort of thing. So like, while I, like I, you know, that's who I give my money to. That's where I go learn. It's hard to argue against Brett from like, he's like, well, here's 3000 girls who have big butts now who didn't before. It's a hard, it's a hard argument to hard. It's hard to argue against results is yeah. all ultimately saying. No, I agree. I mean, there's definitely a lot of counterpoints to that. Like Brett has 1.2 million followers and he has a much larger population of women that come to him because he's been branded as the glute guy. So like he has women with this goal of getting big butts specifically coming to him for big butts. Um, so there's a, a bit of, of that going into it. Um, most of them also, I think are, are on some sort of butt specialization program. Um, like Brett was talking about how he trains their glutes three to five times a week and so, like, a lot of the things that Brett uses are probably a result of um, the fact that he is training with such high frequency. Because, like, he does use lengthened overload movements. Like, he does deadlifts and RDLs and split squats and lunges and, and all these things. Um, but you can't do those five days a week. You do those one or two days a week. And then you can fill in the gaps with, like, these banded distractions that we may call them or um, hip thrusts and glute bridges and like these other kind of short overloaded movements that aren't going to cause a ton of damage. So, so like, so yes, if you're going to go on a glute specialization program and train your glutes five times a week, you have to include some of these movements. Um, and it's not, I, from what I can tell, it's not like his women lack other body parts. It's not like, Ooh, their butt is so big. Like they, they have no back and no, no arms or whatever. Like they have that too. It's just that their butt is, is the thing that stands out because that's what they're prioritizing. Um, so, so I would say that there's, there's certainly that aspect to consider. 
Um, and yeah, like his methods are effective given those constraints, but, um, <laughs> just listening to the man talk is, is just brutal. So, um, for, I guess we didn't even like talk a whole lot about what the, the discussion was about, but it was basically just about like optimal glute training or like optimal training in general. And then it, the conversation started with lengthened versus short, and then it kind of progressed into specific exercises like the, uh, seated, uh, abduction machine the bad girl machine and they spent basically the entire second episode talking about whether the bad girl machine is glutes or piriformis. Um, so anyways, I, I, I kind of envy that you didn't actually listen to the whole thing. Cause in many ways I feel dumber listening to Brett for two straight hours. Um, but, but it was, it was entertaining and I do feel like I, I learned some stuff from that too. So, um, I will listen to part three as well, but, um, yeah, Brett's on this mission, this crusade right now to to attack all of these people that he thinks are are ruining the industry and all this stuff. So, um, I don't know, man. I'm here for the show, I guess. I would have to say that those characteristics are things that I genuine generally like find very off putting for people, and I will like unfollow people and those sorts of things when they like attack people. Or they're like. This person said this, they're fucking stupid because of like X, Y, and Z. I'm like, all right, I'm out of here. Right. I, I just like don't want that sort of energy in my, in my life. And that was, there was something like, I don't know, a year ago or whatever. Where I was like, all right, Brett, I'm out of mm. here sort of thing. Um, but anything that would be of relevance that I potentially would want to understand through that. I would get through Jenny yeah, eventually. Yeah. Um, Cass actually said that he may do a thing where he plays the revive stronger episode and then pauses it and stops and does a video where he talks, where he was like going to talk before Brett cut him off. And so I think that that is something I would watch because then I actually get the education that I want out of it. Instead of just listen to this overgrown gorilla talk about his views on things with his PhD. Um, okay, cool. Let's now that we're 45 minutes in, let's actually talk about uh, injuries and stuff like that. Do you want to kick it off? Yeah. So the, the thing that the first thing that generally comes to mind that I, has happened to me with with um, clients before is, OK, injury happened. We need to slash calories because I'm I can't squat or I can't go running or do all of these modalities. And while depending on your current periodization, if you were in like a surplus, you know, when the injury happened, you may probably not want to continue to be as far in a surplus, but just because you have an injury doesn't mean that your maintenance calories have dropped, you know, significantly, potentially quite, you know, the contrary, because if you have a acute injury that was maybe required a surgery that, um, essentially does more damage, right? Like by cutting through tissue and creating more acute injury, that is an expensive process for your body to now divert resources to repairing those new injuries. If you purposefully reduce your calories into a calorie deficit, you will only prolong the time it takes to recover from said injury. So that is my first thing. If you do get hurt, you do not want to dramatically drop calories because for fear of, you know, un, uh, uncontrollable weight gain or whatever, because you will only prolong how long that injury is around. Yeah, no, I agree. Do you think that, um, maintenance plus is like a good place to be because you want to have enough nutrition there to facilitate recovery, right? So you want to make sure you're not in a deficit. So maybe like if you try to hit maintenance, you might fall short some days. So maybe just being in like a maintenance plus is like a good safety net. It's really hard to say because maintenance is a moving target, right? And you know, Obviously, if it's like a lower body injury and you're going to be on like crutches or in a wheelchair or something like that, that's going to drop considerably. So like what that maintenance may have been is now a little bit lower. So I really hate to say it depends or I'm not even saying it depends. It's just really hard. You're going to have to just play with things a little bit and see how you feel. Obviously, things like hunger are going to shift and that sort of thing. So there, there's a lot of moving pieces there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, oh man, my, my mouse. So I mentioned to you before the episode off air that my mouse is jumping around and doing weird things. So it just jumped me back to the top of my notes 
and now I it's jumping around and I can't get me back to where I want to be. Um, so if you want to just continue talking for a second, I'll try and find my place here. Yeah, let's talk. And then if not, I can just lead off your comments okay. as well. The next thing I said, and, and this is this is what I have done personally. Um, it's what I recommend with clients and stuff too. Like take anywhere from like four on the low end, seven to like 10 days to feel sorry for yourself, depending on like the severity of the injury. And then you want to focus on what you can do. Um, take those couple days, right? You're going to sit on the couch. You're going to probably eat some bullshit food. You're going to be really, really upset about it. But it's important to realize that the longer that goes on, the worse things only get. And there is always a lot you actually can do, right? So the dual purpose with that is in those couple days, it's going to allow your body to adjust to that acute injuries or to that acute injury from a resources standpoint. Um, and then it's also just going to help give you some perspective on how important those things were into your life. So the, I have kind of two examples, um, there and it's going to depend on the injury. So when I injured my lower back in like March, March or April, whenever that was, I actually didn't do a lot. And that was a, a bad thing. I should have been moving a lot, walking because it was like a muscular type, um, uh, injury. And that would have really, really helped versus when I ruptured my Achilles, I basically sat on the couch for like a month. Uh, and that is something that I would also not recommend doing. Uh, and in that case, it was actually Anders, um, who was, you know, your, uh, partner in the gym who messaged me and said, Hey, it's been 30 days now. It's time to come back to the gym. And I really needed that at that point. Yeah. And it was like, okay, they, they want me there. I'm going to go. And there was a lot I still could do in the gym with a huge cast on my foot. Yeah. Um, and then kind of the next point I have there, um, which I briefly touched on is like as shitty as injuries can be, injuries can really help provide perspective on your life. That Achilles injury that I had was the catalyst for what became Straker Nutrition Co. and the entirety of my life right now. It was what made me realize how important the gym was to me. And it was when I started reading about nutrition, actually. So a little bit of, you know, uh, history on my life. I got a couple nutrition books and I was like, I got a lot of time on my hands. I'm going to, you know, read through some books. And it was those books where I was like, oh, I can't just train seven days per week and not eat any carbs. Okay. And the alcohol and my habits on the weekend impact my performance and recovery and those sorts of things. So it was like my very first actually like academic structured intakes of nutrition. And it was blatantly obvious to me of some preconceived, you know, understandings I had reached myself where massive fallacies. Um, so it can really help you put perspective on what is most important when some things do get taken away. Yeah. That was one of the points I was going to make, uh, that you basically brought up there is that if you're going to have something that you can't do, that's such a big part of your life and kind of defines you, then being able to use it productively, um, exactly as you did to like maybe read more or educate yourself in some way or, or do something productive to occupy that time, um, is great. But I think the most important thing is to continue training in some capacity. So like you said, you know, you didn't need to wait 30 days to get back into the gym. Like it could have been like, you felt sorry for yourself for seven days and then, you know, you're back in the gym doing stuff. And so working with the Paragon group, which is just this massive population of people that inevitably has injuries and things pop up over the course of time, um, seems to be one of the most common questions we get in our group is like, Hey, how can I modify because I have X injury? Um, and so a, they have some studies out there that doing uh unilateral movement for even the opposite side has positive effects on the injured side. So in this example, like somebody hurts their knee or in my case, my right foot and just being able to go into the gym and do something on the left leg 
could then have positive impacts on the right leg. So this is like in um, coordination. Um, uh, what there's even maybe I, I could be wrong on this, but it may even be like there's a small impact on like maintaining hypertrophy on the side that you're not even training because of this uh, dual effect. There's like a name for that, but I can't um, I can't off the top of my head remember what that's what that's called. Um, do you know or no? No, um, I do not know, but yeah. I remember the study. It was there. It was a, it was like a knee or ankle injury, and they did seated leg extensions on the good leg, and it to some degree prevented atrophy mm. in the injured leg. That's where I was going with that. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, the, well said. Okay, cool. So, so that's one important thing. So that's always like depending on the severity of the injury that you have. Like that's always my first advice is like, Hey, you can train three quarters of your body still. Cause you can still do the upper body on both sides. And now you can do one leg as well. Furthermore, you might even be able to do more than that because let's say that you have a, uh, a knee injury and it affects your ability to squat and do knee extension, but maybe you can still do uh hip extension and, or, uh, like leg curls and, and things like that. So if you can do that, then now, or maybe you can hip thrust. So now we can create like a hamstring and glute priority program for that leg or for your lower body in general. And then obviously we can still keep training upper body. Um, maybe the injury is really, really bad and you can't even do really single leg work for the good leg because you're worried about your stability. Like maybe you have a torn Achilles and, and you're like, I can't do single leg RDLs because fuck, I might like land on my bad leg and fall over. And you know, that, that doesn't work. That's not smart. Maybe you don't have access to a commercial gym. So you can't really do like single leg, leg extensions and single leg, leg curls. Okay. So we're just not going to train legs for X amount of time. Well, now you just make an upper body specialization cycle. So instead of having two upper body days where you train push and pull, Maybe it's just like you have a four day a week program and you go push, pull, rest, push, pull, rest, and, and something along those lines, right? Maybe there's abs in there or like there's, there's a few different ways that you can kind of splice that up and split it up. Um, and then in some cases it's like my, with my foot, I probably should not have done RDLs, uh, one weekend because I was, uh, pronating to keep the pressure off of my arch. I was having to kind of turn my foot out and that may or may not have contributed to, to what I ended up doing to my low back, uh, last week. But, um, you know, you, you may or may not be able to do some stuff on both legs still. So like in my foot injury, um, I think the RDL was a bad idea, but, um, there's no reason I couldn't have done leg extensions and leg curls till the cows came home. Like I could have just done 10 sets of each and continued training my legs, uh, both the front and the backside with, with no issue there. Um, so, and then, and then the last point I'll make on, on kind of just working around things is, uh, the point I closed last episode with, which is biking instead of walking for me. Um, so being able to continue my energy expenditure, in a manner that's similar to the way that I was doing it. So I was, you know, doing 12 to 15,000 steps, going for purposeful walks after meals and things like that. Um, well, now I'm doing seven or 8,000 steps and they're not nearly as effective steps because I'm limping my way around them. Like um, they're very small. They're, I'm not getting out of breath. My heart rate is super low. It's not really even like walking. And so now I've started biking because biking is something that I can do and, uh, and it can get my heart rate up and it can accomplish a lot of the same things that walking were doing for me. And then, you know, you could do a rower or an elliptical machine, or it really just depends on what your injury is and what form of cardiovascular activity exists that you can use instead of what you're used to doing. Two really, uh, untapped. I mean, I shouldn't say untapped that people don't take advantage of enough. And that I know from personal experience is if you do train in like a CrossFit style gym, uh, and you have like a lower limb injury, let's say knee or ankle foot on a leg, you can row and put the injured foot on a skateboard on the floor, which moves back and forth. That was one of the things that, that Anders did with me. And then, um, again, in, these are generally more 
you, you generally at this point should find these in, in almost all gyms, but like uh, the um, Airdyne or the Rogue Echo Bike, they have the peg on the front. You can just prop your injured leg on that peg and then you have both arms going and your good leg. You could still get a lot of effort and, and um, activity in via that with like your generally larger injuries. Like I literally had a cast on for the first one and then when I had my patella repaired, um, the other one was really, really good for that. I was just able to keep it. I had to keep it straight, set it on the peg and I could ride the bike and get my activity in for sure. And when you are on crutches and stuff like that, and you really are not very mobile, that is like a godsend for sure. Yep. Yep. For sure. No, that's really good. I love the skateboard idea. Um, so one of the, uh, one of the important aspects here to discuss is, is as you're subbing movements in, you know, depending on the severity of your injury, is keeping the sub as similar or applicable as as you can. Um, and so a simple one is like, we just had a girl in the Paragon group the other day be like, hey, lunges like really bother my foot. Like I have something going on with like my toes or my arch or something like that, where pushing off of the ground to step forward and backward in the lunge, it, it just doesn't work for her. But she could split squat. Very, very similar movement pattern. In fact, almost identical. I would say for hypertrophy, you would should notice no change, negative or positive, um, from doing a split squat versus a lunge. And then alternatively, like maybe, uh, like we mentioned earlier, it's a stability issue. And so, you know, you can't, um, you can't do a split squat or a lunge, but maybe you could secure yourself into a leg press machine and you could do like a single leg leg press. So now we're slightly further down the chain as far as uh, specificity to the lunge, but it's still much more specific than say, okay, I'm just going to do a leg extension because now we're only extending at one joint. Whereas the single leg leg press is at least keeping within the realm of, of the, the hip flexion component with the knee extension. So, um, so keeping movement subs, as applicable and thinking of them in like a hierarchy going down the list of how close can I get to emulating the movement that I'm trying to do. Um, therefore trying to keep the stimulus as similar as possible. I love that. And that is so, so spot on. And what's really, really funny is when you were explaining the situation with that, that girl in the Paragon group, it like, it, I got deja vu. Cause that happens to me. I can't do walking lunges. Cause one of my like arches will really start to bother me. Um, but it's been years since I've done them because of that, but I can do all split squats, reverse lunges, like all sorts, but mm. I cannot do the forward walking lunges. Cause like one of my arches will start really bothering me from it. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you're basically that avatar. Yep. Um, so then I also think another consideration is, is range of motion. So, um, I know I've worked with a client before that their pain in their knee uh, from, you know, whatever acute small injury they had, it acted up when they got blow parallel. So they would get to like the bottom of a squat and the knee, knee would kind of just like feel unstable. And there was like a little bit of acute pain there. But if we just went down to parallel and pause and then turn around and change direction, then it'll, there was no knee pain at all. Right. So in that case, you're, you're changing the movement very, very, very little. You're maintaining the the uh, the movement pattern as as closely as you can, and just changing range of motion. The same thing can be happening in like a hip hinge too, where like, and and this is like a, an example just in general. Like you don't even have to be injured to realize that maybe doing a stiff legged deadlift like all the way to the ground, like maybe that's beyond the range of motion that you possess. And so you're constantly getting these like little QL things or low back strains or whatever. And this is literally, it happened to me years ago. So that's why I bring it up. But as soon as I basically changed to doing RDLs almost exclusively where it's going just below the kneecaps to my active range of motion and, you know, pausing at the bottom, not being uh, dynamic on the change of direction, um, shortening that range of motion. Um, I haven't had the same, the same issues with my back that I did when I was going all the way to the ground in the stiff legged deadlift variation. So, um, again, it, it all is based on levels of how severe your injury is and what you can or cannot do. Um, 
because obviously if you have like a, an acute low back injury, like you shouldn't do any hip hinging. Like at that point, you know, maybe you're doing leg curls and you're just doing a ton of them because that's like some hamstring volume that you can do. And it will help you maintain, um, your hamstring hypertrophy until you can hip hinge again. But, um, again, it, there's, there's kind of levels to all of it. There really is. And one level thing that I did want to talk about, it depends on if things are like a soft tissue injury or maybe like a connective tissue injury. Uh, I know previously on the podcast, you know, months ago at this point, I had talked about how like I would pull one of my traps or rhomboids doing an overhead pressing motion. Like it happened like five or six times and I would forget about it until it would happen again. And it wasn't until like I finally started taking care of it when we got here. Like I had my traps and rhomboids were so, 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 so locked up. And it was the most painful, probably not the, but one of the most painful, you know, things in my life to get them taken care of. And now like the sliding surfaces back there are just moving so much better. I have so much more range of motion in those tissues where it could be like, hey, you may have something going on down chain that is, you know, uh, the some movement pattern consistently will aggravate. So it could be something to look a little bit more into for certain movement patterns. Yeah. And then that's kind of like a great transition into talking about how some movements just don't fit you and you should just get rid of them. Um, so like, like I mentioned as well, um, when you talked about pulling that from overhead pressing, I, I talked about how I always would do that in thrusters in CrossFit. Like it was feel like every time that I would either be really tired or go really heavy on thrusters, something would happen and I would pull that same like kind of trap rhomboid area, um, in the upper back. And so, um, it's, it's like, it, it wasn't the thruster itself. It was the overhead press portion. And so ultimately over time, I realized that it was also strict presses and push presses and stuff like that too. So those are the types of movements that now I've kind of just eliminated from my program and I don't do anymore. And then along the same lines, it's the stiff legged deadlift that I talked about before, like just not going to the floor because that movement doesn't feel great for me. Um, and then there's examples of that across the board with, with a ton of other ones. Um, but shoulders for sure are, are one that, uh, that as you get further into this game, you probably have to be a little bit more aware of. Um, and then, uh, do you have any, do you have any other final thoughts on that? Nothing that comes to mind right now. No. Cool. Um, so I just wanted to briefly touch on, on my foot because this is, uh, something that may happen to other people too, where they just have consistently the same series of things like not the same series of things but basically the same body part is affected by a multitude of different things and they kind of compound each other so um maybe this lesson can help you guys maybe not end up where i am with my right foot but um, over the last five years i've had three major injuries that's three not that three major injuries on my uh, on my right foot so five years ago Six years ago at the CrossFit gym, I landed on the rope coming down too fast and basically my foot twisted over it and I tore some stuff on the top of my foot. Um, that took a while to heal. And then three years ago, I dropped a 25 pound plate on my toe in San Diego and shattered my entire big toe and part of the, the toe next to it on my right foot. Um, and that took a while to heal, obviously. And then I just had this uh, plantar fascia tear uh, two weeks ago. And so when I went into the physical therapist's office um, to kind of get assessed on, on basically determining that it was in fact plantar fascia tear, one of the things that they pointed out was that it looks like my metatarsals on my right foot are kind of collapsed. And as a result of the metatarsals being collapsed, it then is putting this extra stress on the plantar fascia because it's not sitting at the height that it's supposed to sit. So the plantar fascia is like constantly in this like stretched state trying to compensate for the metatarsals. And so these are things that like, I didn't even think about ever, but like, I'm sure now that the plantar fascia tear was a result of those two prior things that happened to me, or at least a, a base from the, the smashed toe where it collapsed the metatarsals. So I probably have some physical therapy to do, but, um, 
this right foot thing is now just a problem. Like it now officially is a problem for me. And I may continue to have injuries over the next years in my right foot if I don't do something to kind of correct whatever is happening in it. Um, so, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to look back at those signs and be like, shit, you know, if when I messed my foot up in on the rope in 2017 or 16 or whatever, like I should have gotten that checked out and gotten surgery on that. But, uh, but now obviously it's too late and I just need to kind of deal with the ramifications of what's happened down the line. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, I agree completely. I had one like that. Fortunately it got bad enough for her. I was like, I need to go get the knee surgery. Um, but then I actually smart on the back end of it, took care of it, you know, went through all the, the PT listened to people and now my left knee is just as good as my right. So yeah, I get it. <laughs> Anything else on yeah. this one, Brian? No, I don't think so. I think we hear Bryson yelling in the background. So it might be time to, to call this one an episode and, and move on here. Sounds good. So hopefully this was a helpful episode for you guys, just navigating some injuries and focusing on what you can do is there is always so, so much, um, anything else that maybe, uh, side stories or anything that popped up from this episode. If you guys have any questions, reach out to me, reach out to Brian. Instagram is easiest to reach us and we will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening to eat, train, prosper. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe or share us with your friends. You can find more from Aaron at strakernutritionco.com and more from Brian at evolvedtrainingsystems.com. Talk to you guys next time.